You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. To understand the world honestly is to prioritize science seriously. And to prioritize science seriously is to privilege scientific breakthroughs. Scientific breakthroughs are discoveries or theories that are milestones and touchstones, signposts and shortcuts, surprises and revelations. In pursuing scientific breakthroughs in physics and cosmology, biology and neuroscience, I love the content, the novel ideas, startling data, paradigm-shifting theories. But the process, how breakthroughs happen, should also be pursued. How to get at the nature or essence of the breakthrough process. My way of thinking is philosophy, seeking general features of how things are. Here, how breakthroughs happen. What is philosophy of the breakthrough process? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. How to explore philosophy of the process of scientific breakthroughs. What is it about the process that can give insight and understanding? For example, what are process differences between normal and revolutionary science? Are there methodologies that augment breakthroughs? Are there limits to science? How do new theories replace old theories? How to think about difficult scientific problems that need breakthroughs? I begin in New York with a philosopher of science and essayist who specializes in physics and explores why the world exists, Jim Holt. Jim, what can you say about the process of science? When you're talking about scientific breakthroughs, there's a, uh, a distinction that can be made between normal science and revolutionary science. The normal science part of physics, the part that works within a paradigm, say in a field like solid state physics or plasma physics, the normal science is going pretty well. And there are all kinds of little breakthroughs that are very tightly tied to experimental results in physics. And so theory and experiment are in fairly tight synchrony there. Then there's the question of high energy particle physics and the foundations of physics. A big breakthrough in the early 20th century with uh, the quantum theory and then quantizing classical physics, that's over, that's been accomplished, except for the ultimate unified theory, which is always just over the horizon. So there have been no revolutionary breakthroughs in physics in a long time, and it may be that we're at the end of that part of the history of physics where there are revolutionary breakthroughs. But now we're in this period where theory has outstripped uh, observation, you know, all possible observations pretty much. And so th th there's no reason to think a big, a revolutionary breakthrough is imminent in physics. That, you know, the normal science part of physics, all of the, you know, the relatively applied areas of physics, lots of little breakthroughs are happening constantly. Uh, and so the normal science is healthy the revolutionary 
science that would lead to a paradigm shift uh, is not happening. Describe for me what is the process by which those people who are looking for those paradigm shifts, how they work. Until the last 10 years or so, the overwhelming majority of the physics community that was concerned with the next big breakthrough, the breakthrough that would enable us to unify theoretical physics, were uh, invested in string theory. And then, as, as string theory has sort of you know, failed to realize its promise, there's been a new trend towards what's called phenomenology in physics, which is doing it in sort of a more of a bottom-up way rather than a top-down way, not looking for the ultimate theory and seeing how everything fits under that, but taking the, the, the phenomenological experimental results that we have and trying to make kind of mid-level theories that make sense of them. Those are also breakthroughs, but they're not the revolutionary breakthroughs that would cause a paradigm shift. That, that too is part of normal science. Do, do you see any um, analogs of this in other areas of science beyond physics? Uh, in terms of uh, how the process of science works. I would say the real action now is, is in genetics and brain science. That's the stuff that's going to really affect our lives and reveal the mysteries of the mind the, and, the, and the mysteries of how the, uh, the gene results in a functioning biological entity that is you or me. Jim says scientific breakthroughs should be considered in two categories, normal science and revolutionary science. The controversial claim is that there isn't much revolutionary science left in physics and cosmology, or at least not any that can be proven by experiments. If so, if theories at the leading edge of physics and cosmology cannot be subject to experimental tests, even in principle, how would that affect the process of breakthroughs? I pursue this disjunction between theory and experiment with a science journalist who famously declared the end of science, some would say infamously, John Horgan. Breakthroughs, really big advances in science can happen in a lot of different ways. In some cases, it's, it's quite predictable. So in the 1940s, for example, a lot of biologists were obsessed with the problem of heredity. How does uh, genetic information get passed down from one generation to the next? And uh, they isolated a couple of substances, proteins, uh, possibly nucleic acids that could be uh, storing genetic information. And then, of course, Crick and Watson famously decoded the structure of DNA and later showed that that was what was responsible for uh, heredity. Then. There's pure serendipity. One of my favorite examples is the discovery of the cosmic microwave background. It's, right. it's kind of the afterglow of the Big Bang. Right. This was discovered in the early 60s. Radio by, noise. Yeah, <laughs> by some engineers at Bell Labs who were working on microwave communication and got this static in their instruments that they couldn't explain. And finally, one of them realized that this was a prediction of certain uh, cosmological theories. Now, philosophers of science have tried to come up with a, a methodology, like a formula or algorithm that can explain scientific discovery. And if it's applied, this methodology, it will make it more efficient. I don't think that will ever happen. I'm a big fan of the philosopher of science, Paul Feyerabend. Mm -hmm. And after looking at a lot of possible methodologies, he decided that there is no methodology. Scientists just should do whatever they have to do to try to figure stuff out. Now, 
I have to say that no matter how creative and imaginative science is, it's different than the arts because it has to have that connection to reality through experiment, observation, and so forth. Uh, at this point, discovery is slowing down, not just the big discoveries, but the pace of uh, discovering new drugs, the pace of even of of keeping Moore's Law going, the amount of money that you have to spend to develop smaller, more efficient computer chips has gone up with each successive advance. The implication is that we're bumping into physical limits in lots of different fields in applied science as well as pure science. Uh, when I wrote The End of Science, I was really focused just on the effort to understand the universe, what I would call pure science. I didn't expect that these limits would show up in applied science, not as early as they did. But they're, they're there, and it's something that people really have to, have to grapple with. Some people claim that the reason we can't answer some of the big fundamental questions is because our brains are not capable of doing it, because our brains evolved to escape a jaguar in the savanna in Africa, and uh, not to solve quantum mechanics or doing any of these questions. The other kind of limit is that our brains are capable of understanding the most fundamental thing. It's just that the, the thing in itself has a limit. Right. Which side are you on? I, I think there are lots of different limits. In particle physics, uh, there is the problem of seeing deeper and deeper into, the, into matter. That requires bigger and bigger instruments, and at some point that becomes an economic limit and a physical limit. That's when you're talking about a particle accelerator bigger than the Milky Way. But then cognitive limits are very important as well. Cognitive limits, physical limits, economic limits, all are real limits. Worse, John argues there are no methodologies to transcend these limits. If he is right or if he is wrong, either way, he is constructing a philosophy of the process of scientific breakthroughs. And he offers two elements of such a philosophy, real limits and no methodologies. Are the prospects of big breakthroughs dim? If John is a breakthrough pessimist, should I speak with a breakthrough optimist? With someone who envisions big breakthroughs and rich understanding of the process to achieve them. I speak with a physicist who speculates about a wild future by requiring breakthroughs to push the laws of physics, Michio Kaku. Well, my favorite quote from Einstein is that if a theory cannot be explained to a child, then the theory is probably worthless, meaning that all great theories boil down to a picture, a simple picture that encapsulates the essence of a paradox, a contradiction. For Einstein, it took place when he was 16 years old. He asked himself a simple question, a children's question, that changed the course of human destiny. And that question was, can you outrace a light beam? Now, this 16-year-old boy realized that Newton had an answer and that is, of course, you can go as fast as you want. But then Einstein said, now, wait a minute. There's something wrong with that picture. Because that means that light as a wave would be frozen. You race alongside a light beam, the light beam is frozen. He'd never seen a frozen light beam before. And so he said, aha, either the theory of light is wrong, Maxwell's theory, or Newton was wrong. And he showed that, yes, Newton was wrong and it collapsed 
all of, of modern physics up to 1905. With Darwin, he also had a picture. In his notebook, he drew a picture of a tree branch, a simple picture that changed our understanding of life on the earth. Because that tree branch showed that one animal can then bifurcate into two other species, creating four species and more and more species, and you get the tree of life starting from that one picture. So you see that breakthroughs take place when there's a paradox. A paradox, a contradiction between a theory of light and a theory of motion, which led to Einstein's theory. And then Darwin himself said that, look, we have thousands, millions of different life forms on Earth, all of which were simply created by God. Is there a rhyme or reason to this? And he came up with the theory of evolution. And so I think that these scientific breakthroughs are sometimes done by accident, but they're done in a way that unleashes and isolates the fundamental paradox of the old paradigm. What are some potential examples in today's world? When we look at um, string theory, for example, we realize that it had a totally radical point of view with regards to the subatomic particles. You have to realize that when string theory was first formulated in 1968 by accident, people laughed at it. It was considered the pariah because the theory predicted that the universe was in 10 dimensions and that particles were not fundamental, but vibrating strings were fundamental. So you have to realize that breakthroughs take place, but what's the reaction to these breakthroughs? Laughter, derision, smirking. So we have to realize that new theories have to fight tooth and claw for survival. Why is that the case? Scientists are supposed to be so rigorous, so logical, accepting of evidence and logical uh, explanations. It's because scientists are conservative revolutionaries. They're conservative because they believe in the old paradigm first. But as Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. When that extraordinary proof finally comes in, then instantly physicists change their mind and say, yes, yes, this is the new paradigm shift. Uh, where we are uh, today. Yeah. If you take a look at where in all of science we have the greatest unknowns, one is, of course, the Big Bang and what happened before the Big Bang. String theory does give you proposals to the pre-Big Bang universe. For example, we believe in a multiverse where our universe is a bubble that's expanding, but there are other bubbles out there. And when these bubbles collide or these bubbles fission, that is the Big Bang. That's one set of unsolved problems. The other one is inner space, not outer space, but the inner space of the human mind, consciousness. Realize that 20,000 papers of consciousness have been written and no consensus at all. Never in the history of science have so many people devoted so much time to produce so little. To Michio, big breakthroughs of the past are obvious. Relativity, quantum theory, evolution. Big breakthroughs of the future are needed. What triggered the Big Bang? Could string theory be the final theory? What is consciousness? That scientists are conservative because they cling to old paradigms is a good thing. Extraordinary claims do demand extraordinary proof. How to find such proof is the philosophical challenge of breakthroughs. 
especially when scientific experimentation is not feasible, string theory being a prime example. I explore the challenge with a philosopher of physics who works on foundations of quantum theory, David Wallace. So in string theory, you don't have experiment as a constraint on what's going on because we just can't do experiments at these energy levels. What you have instead is the desire to hold on to the core content of quantum mechanics and quantum field theory and to hold on to what a quantum theory of general relativity of, should look like when we're at length scales much bigger than the length scales of the strings. That theory goes crazy when you get down to lengths so short to be the Planck length, where um, strange things happen to it. And that theory then tells us very strange things about cosmology, black holes, the creation of particles from nothing. That's led people time and again to very odd things, to, to strings, to 26 dimensions, to 10 to the power of whatever that large number was, <laughs> landscapes. What generally has kept people taking it seriously has been the fact that when you have that thing, you do a bunch of calculations you wouldn't have expected and you're, getting, you're still getting back those same answers that you predicted from the theory you had before. In experimental science, philosophers often talk about novel empirical success, which is when a theory makes an experimental prediction that you wouldn't have guessed was there before and then you check the world and do degrees. And that's the analog for the experimental discovery, discovery that you would predict the antiparticle or something. Ex exactly that. So for the the case of black holes, which is the favourite playground of the string theorist, a large number of things were calculatable from black holes using the low-energy quantum version of general relativity, mm. where we, we did calculations to quite substantial accuracy, and then you did the calculations in a completely different way using string theory, and the calculations get the same result out to a great deal of detail. What are some examples from the experimental world where you had uh, a prediction from theory and you checked it and it really was that way? So the famous ones in the history of physics are around the development of the general theory of relativity. Einstein's prediction of the precession of the perihelion of Mercury, they knew the number, but the number was this very precise result, 43 arc seconds um, per century, really, really small, I should say, um, but really, really precise. And that number wasn't baked into the general theory of relativity, and yet that number came out of the theory. The fact that it had just the same number that people had observed the previous century um, counts as novel in that sense. How often do you see a prediction being made and then that occurring? The LIGO discovery of gravity waves absolutely counts here. Mm -hmm. So gravity mm -hmm. waves That's are correct. a novel prediction yes. from relativity theory from 100 years ago. And more than that, the detailed prediction of exactly what gravity waves look like um, coming off black holes. These were calculations done in a great deal of detail and depth in the utter absence of observations because gravity waves are so phenomenally difficult to observe. A full century later, when one does the experiments, the, the fit is astonishing. astonishing. So, um, so you know, re remarkable enough that it becomes almost unserious not to recognize the power of the theory in the light of data like that. David views breakthroughs with the eye of a philosopher. When a theory has no relationship to some data, but can predict that data with high precision, that counts. When a theory that emerges to solve one set of problems can explain another independent set of problems, that also counts. But how to develop a theory to solve a problem that seems intractable? There's no better example than consciousness. 
and I discuss it with the philosopher of mind who famously formulated the hard problem of consciousness, how can experiences of the mind be explained by states of the brain, David Chalmers. So my starting point when it comes to consciousness is what I call the hard problem, the problem of how physical processes in the brain could give you subjective experience. I mean, the easy problems of consciousness are the problems of explaining things like responses, how I might process some information and point to something or talk about it or control my behavior. Those are very non-trivial problems, but we've got an idea how to explain them. Find the right circuit in the brain, the right computational process. They will generate these behaviors, and then we explain them. The hard problem is why is all that accompanied by subjective experience? Why does it feel like something from the inside? And that's a very deep and fundamental mystery. And the matter problem is why do we think and talk about consciousness? And in particular, why do we think there's a problem of consciousness? And interestingly, although the hard problem itself is not a problem about behavior, it's a big mystery, the matter problem is ultimately a problem about objective processes in our brain and our behavior. Because ultimately, if I'm sitting here saying something like, I am conscious. Consciousness poses a hard problem. That's an objective behavioral fact about me. And you can subject at least that fact to the standard methods of neuroscience, cognitive science, and so on. In a way, the meta problem is an easy problem of consciousness. Explain why it is that I say these things about consciousness. And the thought, the hope is that maybe the right explanation of the meta problem, that's something which is tractable, but once we do it, maybe it will shed some light on the hard problem. How, how is that even possible in principle? Because it sounds like that, uh, you, that your state of saying, uh, what is the problem of consciousness? That state is the same as saying, uh, you know, that it's today we're both in all black. I mean, they're mm -hmm. both propositional facts that have certain brain processes. The fact that it's about consciousness, why does that make a difference? Now, the important thing is that all of these are measurable, objective, behavioral facts. Right. Whether we're talking about our clothes or the weather or about consciousness, our saying those things are objective facts that we can subject to the standard methods of science. So if our subject matter becomes not explain consciousness, but explain the things I say about consciousness, suddenly we have operational criteria for that. We can measure it, we can perform experiments, and the hope is that those processes that generate this behavior, my saying to you, I am conscious. Consciousness seems mysterious to me. That might also play some role in generating consciousness itself. I, I'm, I'm thrilled to have any approach to the problem, even if it has a, a remote chance of success, but I still don't see how we'd learn anything more just because the content is about the word consciousness. Well, in a way, it's, it's a part of the charm of this approach that the same methods that might work for explaining why we talk about the external world might give us some grip to in explaining why we talk about consciousness. That's what makes it tractable. Here's an assumption. The processes that generate the things we say about consciousness are also the processes responsible for consciousness itself. Now, this doesn't solve the hard problem. There's still a big mystery. How could those processes give you consciousness itself? But at least you've kind of narrowed down the hard problem a bit. So you know which processes to focus on in making progress. Consciousness is so strange and so mysterious that I think we need all the crazy and productive ideas 
we can get to come at it. So some of the time in my thinking, I'm dwelling on extremely speculative ideas like quantum mechanics, panpsychism. Sometimes it's new ideas from the science, the neural correlates of consciousness. And every now and then there's, you come across something that kind of combines the two. Let's think about how we think and talk about consciousness. That's the meta problem. And I hope it's one of these days, maybe one of these crazy ideas will pay off. What constitutes a philosophy of the process of scientific breakthroughs? Support new theories by predicting data that does not yet exist. Explaining data that does exist, but does not make sense. Solving problems of a different kind. Expect less revolutionary science in physics and cosmology, more in genomics and brain science. This differentiates the process in biology from the process in physics. There are physical, cognitive, and economic limits to breakthroughs. If these are real limits, and if no methodologies can transcend these limits, then the process must change. Count it good that scientists are conservative. Breakthroughs are extraordinary claims that do demand extraordinary proof. Consider the meta-problem of problems needing breakthroughs. Why do scientists think that such problems are hard? Could analyzing meta-problems be a new way to approach seemingly intractable problems? On a personal note, Jim Holt and John Horgan, ordered alphabetically by first or last names, are not only my favorite writers on science, they are also among my favorite philosophers of science. And while I take seriously their skepticism about new revolutionary breakthroughs, I wouldn't yet prescribe changes in process. I sense big pieces still missing, getting closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.